Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our Bible study series on the book of Romans. Now, I will give you a little bit of warning today. It might be a bit shorter than usual, but I don't want you to go without some Romans. <laughs> Lord knows, the first time I took a break from this series, it ended up having to result in another break, and then another break. And then it took a while for us to get back into the swing of things, and here we are, uh, six months later, after having started all this, going, my goodness, how does he only have 25 parts to this series? So even if it is a little bit shorter than normal, we are still going to have it. Mark my words. If you have a Bible handy, please open it up to the book of Romans chapter 10. Now, as we get into chapter 10 here, we are going to notice St. Paul veering away a little bit from chapter 9's discussion topic on Gentile-Jewish relations. Who is the chosen people of God? How do we define and understand Israel in light of salvation by faith alone? He's going to veer a little bit away from that, but he's going to tie it up back together as we go forward. So let's go ahead and just start reading here from chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, all right, with those first four verses here, we do see that St. Paul reiterates something very, very similar to what he said at the very beginning of chapter 9. He loves his kin. He loves his fellow Hebrews. He wants them to be saved. That is ultimately what they need. That's what he wants for them. And he'll give them that right now they do have something going for them. There is a zeal for God. There is a passion to serve God. And it's evident if you ever read the writings of the Pharisees or Hillel or Shammai or any of these guys, that indeed at least some of them really did want to be devoted to God. But he says it's not according to knowledge. Their traditions, their additions to the scripture, everything that they were doing was so jacked up. They didn't know how to read the Bible. They had muddied the waters with the traditions of men. They had uh, fallen into mysticism. If you follow the Dead Sea Scrolls series, you can see what a lot of the Enochian angel worship type belief structure, what that'll do to somebody's faith. It's going to distract them away from what really honestly saves us. The new perspective on Paul that various theologians will bring up tries to say, well, uh, listen, Hebrews and Jews, they weren't a monolith during this time, and not all of them held to salvation by observance of the law. That's correct. However, the ones who did not believe in salvation by obedience to the law had theologies that were total messes. They didn't know what to believe. They honestly thought the book of Jubilees and the book of First Enoch took preeminence over anything Moses wrote. 
They had weird hierarchies of angels and fables and myths that they would just fall into. They would just drown in this stuff. And then you had the Sadducees who didn't care one whit about salvation. They cared about the sacrifices they were making over in the temple. And then they cared about pleasing Caesar. Nobody in this time, except for the Christian church, had any idea how one actually got to heaven. And in verse 3, St. Paul does give us more of the diagnosis here for what was wrong. He says, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And again, this extends to every Jewish group, regardless of whether they held the same soteriological fancies as the Pharisees. They wanted to follow the law. They wanted to say they're good people. They had the universal instinct that everybody has of, I want to be a good person. After all, just like the Gentiles, they too have the law written in their hearts. Only in addition to that, they had the written word of God, which revealed yet more of their insufficiency in the face of this. So some groups said, okay, we're just going to obey the law as much as humanly possible, and we are going to be perfect. We're going to set up extra laws to form a fence around the law so we never touch disobedience to the law. And then meanwhile, you have guys over at Qumran saying, oh, no, 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 no. You want to really follow the law, so we need to change everything. We need to have calendars. We need to look at other gods and have them be our friends. Maybe they'll help us out. You had the Sadducees saying, yeah, it doesn't matter. Follow the law for the sake of following the law, and that is righteousness. Let's go ahead and do that. And by the way, we're going to ignore everything in the Bible that convicts us, which means we're going to toss the prophets out of the canon. We are only going to admit the first five books of the Bible, just like those Samaritans, who we, you know, will hate them for other reasons. And speaking of the Samaritans, the spiritual half-breeds, so to speak, they were hated for various reasons, whether it was their Assyrian slash Babylonian slash Greek slash whatever admixture in their family history, or if it was the fact they thought that it was over in Samaria that the temple should be, the fact that they had dropped all the prophets and everything, the Samaritans had no way or understanding as to how exactly one should be saved. So they just tried to follow the law, I guess. It was a mess. But every single one of these groups was seeking an independent righteousness apart from what God had revealed. And St. Paul says here is a great thesis statement for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Plainly there in verse 4, if you want to be righteous, you must believe in Jesus. It is his righteousness that matters here. Now somebody is going to say, wait a second. It says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So this means we don't have to observe the law. We don't even have to obey God's commandments. Here is St. Paul being a dirty antinomian. Obviously, that's not the case, as St. Paul wrote chapters 6, 7, and 8. He wrote quite extensively against antinomians and the willy-nilly party who thought that, well, Jesus' sacrifice was perfect and infinite and so much better than everything else, so we don't even need to worry about whether or not we're sinning. St. Paul has already written against that idea. That's not you anymore. 
But the word that we see here for end is telos, or purpose, the aim of the law. Christ is the aim or purpose of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is St. Paul giving his stamp of approval on what's called the second use of the law. The Ten Commandments, and in fact all of the commandments in Holy Scripture, have three big purposes. The first is as a curb. It curbs wickedness and evil. If you say that the punishment for murder is getting executed, you're less likely to murder. And it makes things right if a murderer is put to death. That's in the law. It is a way to stop people from doing bad stuff by the terror of the consequences of their actions. And it is a way to keep them from doing it ever again. The law acts as a curb. That is the first use of the law. The second use of the law is as a mirror. When you look at the law and you ask yourself, honestly, whether or not you have followed it, you will always come up short. But while the law will inform you that you are a dirty, rotten, stinking, miserable sinner who cannot redeem himself, the law doesn't leave you alone. The law doesn't just tell you, now go despair in a corner. In fact, the law will tell you that despair is a sin. What does the law do instead? The law points you to Christ. The law tells you, if you can't save yourself, you need somebody else to save you. This is what St. Paul is getting at here. The law has a purpose of leading us to Jesus so he can be our righteousness. We who have faith in him. Everyone who believes. Now that said, there is also a third use of the law, which is, after you have become a believer, the law is not always going to accuse you. The law can also guide you. What once was your mortal enemy is now your friend teaching you how to please God. Which as a third use, it's something you naturally want to do as a believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus died for all the times that I stole. Well, now I don't want to steal anymore. Jesus died for those sins. I don't want to add more sins to that. And in fact, you know what? It makes him happy as my Lord and my Savior for me to give instead of steal, to work instead of laze around waiting for something to take. Jesus wants me to do these things, and I want to be more like Jesus, so I'm going to give the way he gives, and I'm not going to steal. That's the third use of the law. The reason we as Christians still love and do our best to obey the Ten Commandments. Now that said, the law should not be a dirty word. It really shouldn't. In Lutheran circles, unfortunately, there are groups of people that think that if you mention the law and if you mention the commandments of God, you're just trying to tell them to feel bad. They hone in on the second use of the law, convicting us, lex semper accusat, the law always accuses, and they'll say, Oh, oh boy, howdy, pastor, that was a lot of law you just preached. Well, now I'm feeling bad, so now you got to give me the gospel. And they don't see that, wait a second, the law tells you to go to Christ. The law informs you that you need a savior. It will tell your soul this very truth, and that's a good thing. Don't be upset when somebody preaches the law at you. And then you're supposed to get into the third use of the law. The third use of the law is incredibly, extremely important. Because if God tells you to do something, 
you still got to do it. <laughs> Even if Jesus Christ has fulfilled the purpose of the law for you. Does that mean we have to go do Passover sacrifices and guilt offerings? And do we have to set up a new tabernacle? Absolutely not. This is one of the big problems with the Hebrew roots people, as well as a lot of the theonomists, if they're being honest, is they want to say, well, the whole law. That's not what St. Paul is getting at. He really does center in on the Ten Commandments and the two greatest commandments. I shouldn't have to talk about this again, but hey, maybe somebody's listening to this recording for the very first time. If this is the first of the Romans recordings that you've ever heard, please go back to episode one here and start from the beginning. There is a lot of foundation that St. Paul has to lay before we get into all the other matters that he brings up in chapters 9 through 11 and so forth. Now, in verse 2 here, it says they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And now we have to hone in on exactly what that knowledge is. Because there is a group of heretics, which has almost always plagued the church, called Gnostics. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. They believed in salvation through something called Gnosis. G-N-O-S-I-S. -S. Gnosis is an experiential knowledge. They had all sorts of goofy doctrines and they don't all agree with each other, but almost universally all Gnostics believed that you weren't saved by faith in Jesus. You were saved by knowledge of Jesus. Knowledge that was usually some secret esoteric thing about what Jesus actually did. They held to an extreme duality in metaphysics where spirit is good, matter is bad. They held to platonic philosophy in an extreme sort of fashion where the forms and ideals and concepts were of greater importance than anything material. And anything material that exists is tragic at best and willfully evil at worst. They held to all sorts of secret doctrines like the notion that the Old Testament God was actually this evil dude named the Demiurge or Yaldabaoth. And they honestly believed that he was the creator of all matter because most holy Sophia, the Aeon of Wisdom, had an oopsie and accidentally created the Demiurge. And thus, mankind needed to be saved because, well, the Demiurge created their bodies. Sophia gave them a spark of inner light, inner deity, or whatever, that would allow them to escape the wicked state of material existence. At least that's according to, I believe, Valentinian Gnosticism. There are other groups that had different names for stuff. Some of them called Sophia Barbalo instead of Sophia, and so on and so forth. It's weird stuff. But they would point to verses like this and say, see, these Jews were damned because they did not experience knowledge. Conveniently leaving out the fact that St. Paul doesn't use the term gnosis. Not specifically anyway. He uses the term epignosis, which is a specific, pointed kind of gnosis. What do we mean by this? Well, gnosis is the idea of first-hand experiential knowledge, as we covered. You can know in your head how to golf. 
You might watch videos on YouTube of how to get that perfect golf swing in. Maybe you even study a certain golf course on the exact kind of driver club that you might need and the exact putter that you might need when you're close to the hole. You might know everything about the rules of golf and you have all of this knowledge, but it's just head knowledge. It is not gnosis. If you go out there and start practicing golf, you actually start going out and swinging a golf club and you know by experience what it's like. You know by experience what it really takes. Suddenly now you have a gnosis of golf. Am I making sense here? A lot of people, they don't understand that there is a big difference between head knowledge and experiential knowledge. St. Paul here, when he uses epignosis, he's talking about a particular focused recognition. Not an experience, not first-hand contact like normal gnosis here. He is talking about how you might recognize a friend or a person, and that person, of course, being Jesus Christ. That's what he's going to be aiming at here in Romans chapter 10, verse 2. He is not saying we are saved by knowing who Christ is. After all, it is salvation by faith, not salvation by gnosis. He has said very clearly and very plainly over and over and over again in Romans and elsewhere that we are justified not by gnosis. We are not declared righteous by gnosis or even epinosis. We are declared righteous by faith, pistis trusting in Jesus to be our Savior. So the sense of the text here is that if the Hebrews of St. Paul's day had known and understood who their salvation was and who could give them righteousness, who it is that the law points to in its second use, then their zeal for God would have been directed aright. But that's not the case. St. Paul says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So as he's been explaining here that the Gentiles are admitted into Israel and a lot of the Jews are, well, broken off from it. He will get into the broken branch theology later. He's bringing up the why. Their theology is going to be a mess because not only do they not know that God is going to self-reveal here in the person of Jesus Christ for their salvation, but they take their ignorance and instead of trying to find it out, what do they do? They decide to fill that hole with works righteousness. And again, to respond to the quote-unquote new perspective on Paul type of people, it's not just the Pharisees trying to establish their own righteousness. Works righteousness does not always have to be about salvation. There are other kinds of works righteousness. You can claim you don't care whether or not you're saved. You care about obedience. There are so many churches these days in the evangelical world that do that. All they talk about is obedience. They see the Christian life as consisting of entirely just obedience. I know a church in Southern California where a pastor basically just said that. Somebody asked him, 
Is it really just about obedience? And he looked at him and said, is there anything else? <laughs> this was an evangelical megachurch pastor saying that. And there's so many sermons where all they preach is just, do, don't, do, don't. Here's five ways to make your marriage better. Here's 10 ways to raise your kids. Here's what the Bible tells you to do. Here is the wisdom you're supposed to follow. It doesn't touch on salvation. They might say they believe in salvation by faith, but they're going to talk about obedience. 99.999% of the time, that's works righteousness. They don't preach the gospel. They don't care about the gospel. They don't even think about the gospel. I listened to, at that church, 62 sermons in a row. I just, every night at work, while I was working as a janitor, I listened to each one of their sermons on the gospel of St. Luke, and not once did they actually preach the gospel. Everything was about what you are supposed to do, how you are supposed to live. Here is what the law is telling you. And the theonomists are even worse about that. They want people stoned to death. They love the law so much, you see, even if they pay lip service to the real gospel. But St. Paul says they're seeking to establish their own righteousness, the human impulse to say, I am a good person. And if I'm not a good person, I'm going to either rationalize that away until I can say I'm a good person, or I'm going to seek to be a good person, and that's all I'm ever going to do. And yes, there are certain denominations that have historically taught works righteousness in the classical sense that you are saved by being a very, very good boy and racking up enough merit points to where you can say, aha, you see, I am in a state of grace. God has to let me into heaven because them's the rules according to the one true holy and apostolic church and blah, 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 blah. Absolutely, there have been teachers like that in churches and denominations like that. But there's also the kind of works righteousness where people will say, yeah, it's not about the law, the ceremonial law. You really don't have to worry about that. What I want you to do is be a hyper ascetic until you have this super duper spiritual experience that is justification. And that's how you're going to get into heaven provided you make it past the after-death experiences that may or may not be totally made up. Yes, that happens. But it's also a problem in Protestant circles. It's a problem with the theonomists. It's a problem with the evangelicals. It's a problem with some of the Reformed who like theonomy. And it's also going to be a problem among Lutherans. <laughs> Yes, there are denominations that will say they believe in the true gospel and then they will proceed to ignore it all of their lives. And in every sermon and in every Bible study, they will just ignore the fact that Jesus died for your sins and act as though that is of no consequence as you seek to establish your own righteousness. And of course, it couldn't be us Lutherans though, right? Oh no, we're too smart for that. See, we preach law and gospel every single Sunday. We do the right thing. We won't shut up about soteriology in the gospel. But some Lutherans pull a hat trick. They won't admit it, but they do. What they'll say is, ah, you are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is the only way you are saved. And it's not by your works at all. Ever. Now here's this list of 400,000 things that will damn you if you deviate even one point from my doctrine. I am going to hurl anathemas 
at everything that catches my wrathful eye until it is virtually impossible for anybody to be saved. Faith is not a work, but you have to work really, really, really hard at having exactly the right kind of faith. I am going to turn the faith into something you have to access by the laws I am going to set up through my anathemata until you are unable to actually have it. But of course, I have that true faith, you see. Yeah, if a Lutheran starts talking like that, remind him, hey, you know, there's probably Baptists in heaven. There's Catholics in heaven. There are some Eastern Orthodox people in heaven. It is absolutely true that we believe in felicitous inconsistency, and people can have saving faith in Jesus without even knowing that they have saving faith in Jesus. Provided, of course, they're Christian in the first place. But those Lutherans out there that really, really, really want to add all these rules to faith until they're basically believing in salvation by mental works, they're Gnostics, and we should pray for their salvation. We have this problem, too, even though we are supposed to be the, the sola fide denomination. Now, all that said, St. Paul has been explaining this as a big why. Why is it? that the Gentiles have been let in? Well, because they approach Christ in saving faith. So they are permitted to be part of God's chosen people, his Israel. He's shown how the real definition of Israel is those who have this saving faith in Jesus, that share the faith of Abraham. He's been getting into this, getting into the weeds on this, but at the end of the day, when people ask, well, why not the Jews then? Why not all these people who have been working so hard? St. Paul says, listen, they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to the right recognition of Christ. The law was for that. That's why the law is even there in the first place is to point you to Jesus. For soteriological purposes anyway, this is the whole purpose and telos of the law. You cannot know righteousness apart from the one who died on a cross to be your righteousness. So St. Paul earnestly wishes, and rightly earnestly wishes, that his kinsmen would find Christ and trust in him for their salvation. And that is a godly thing to do. As we've mentioned before, the gospel does not erase your identity, your kin, your family. It is good to pray for them and to think about them often as your people, as somebody to pray for and love and hope for the best. Now, with that said, next week we're going to get into more of how salvation by faith works and how exactly faith is bestowed, how all that stuff works in the context of Lutheran monergism. Can't wait for it. Amen and amen.